now with uh, connected television, um, you know, there's no need for Nielsen anymore. That's Ali Ha'eri, Vice President of Marketing at Mountain, our sponsor on this episode of the Digiday podcast. Later in the show, Custom talks with Ali about the changing relationships between brand and performance teams as TV advertising gets connected. Welcome to another episode of the Digiday Podcast. I'm Kaylee Barber, Senior Reporter at Digiday. And I'm Tim Peterson, Senior Media Editor at Digiday. So Tim, today you have the interview and you spoke with Imani Dunbar, who is the Head of Equity Strategy at LinkedIn. Um, I am very curious to hear about uh, how this conversation went because... LinkedIn is kind of like one of the main tools that not just publishers or, or marketers, but you know every company really uses to um, find new talent and uh, you know post job openings and things like that. Um, but a big conversation that a lot of companies have been having and, and you know, thinking about recently is how to fulfill those like diversity, equity, and inclusion promises that they made in the past year. Um, I know, well, I'm saying publishers, but like companies in general have been kind of blaming like a a pipeline issue, not being sure of where to find diverse talent, which, you know, I don't know if they necessarily should be saying that as an excuse or not. I mean, really, they shouldn't be. But LinkedIn is, you know, one of the platforms that they can use to search for talent. Um, What did Imani say about, um, I guess, how LinkedIn is helping companies it works with to, you know, tackle diversity in their in their own organizations. Yeah, it's interesting because that that was one of the you know main reasons why I wanted to talk with Imani is because of that position LinkedIn is as a platform that's used for recruiting and hiring. And so one of the things that we talked about is um, this feature that if I remember right, LinkedIn just recently began to roll out where, um, you know, recruiters can hide candidates' names and profile photos um, from hiring managers when evaluating people for open positions, basically to ensure that um, whoever the hiring managers are, aren't, you know, taking a person, you know, what a person looks like or what their name suggests about their identity into account over what their qualifications would be um, Mm -hmm. for a given position. Although that then, you know, led me to wonder, well, in the same way that it solves a problem, also introduce a problem of, you know, what about companies that do want to be taking, you know, people's identities into account because they want to, they have a lot of room for improvement when it comes to the the diversity and inclusivity of their workforce. And so they they don't want to, you know, just hire more, you know, white men, for Mm -hmm. example. Um, But she had actually a really good answer to that, that I will not spoil so that people can um, come across that in the conversation. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I'm I'm curious to hear what she has to say about that for sure. I'm also wondering though, so like LinkedIn is a company itself, right? It has the external kind of focus on helping other companies, but you know, internally, how have they been kind of approaching like DE and I? Um, are they working on improving like their own staff diversity, or did she get into that at all? 
on the diversity front, we didn't get too much into that because um, LinkedIn's going to be publishing its diversity report in October. And so she is very much lock and key with the details there. But um, we did talk about um, the equity at the company. And, and it actually, like their equity situation is pretty admirable and probably better than I would guess the majority of other companies, unfortunately. But, um, mm. you know, for every dollar earned by LinkedIn's male employees, female employees earn um, 0.998 cents. So there's, you know, two one thousandths of a dollar difference. So mm. obviously there's still work to do to close that gap entirely. But, you know, that gap is pretty small, especially mm. when you consider it's, you know, generally 70 to 80 cents on the dollar uh, that women make at a lot of other companies. And mm. then when it comes to employees of color in the U.S., they earn as much, you know, for every dollar employees of color earn, um, white employees earn the same. So there is that equity parity uh, when it comes to uh, people, you know, of different races and ethnicities. Amazing. So um, it's very clearly possible uh, lessons for other companies to follow as well. Uh, but that's awesome. I'll let you get into the conversation. I'm excited to hear what she has to say. Cool. Thanks, Kayla. I'm Andy Dunbar. Welcome to the Digiday Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Tim Peterson, thank you for having me. Um, and you nailed the pronunciation of my name, which does not happen often. So thank you. Well, LinkedIn has this really helpful feature where people can add the pronunciations of their names as an audio file to their profiles, which comes in really handy. People could not see my thumbs up and my voracious head nodding and the smile that sprouted across my face. It is a phenomenal <laughs> feature, Tim. Thank you for taking advantage of it. Absolutely. And we will get to talking about that because that obviously fits in with the efforts underway at LinkedIn to help promote more inclusivity um, across the broader workforce. Um, before we get into all that, though, so you are the head of equity strategy at LinkedIn. And I feel like for all the focus on equity across the workforce in recent years, head of equity strategy is seems like an uncommon title. I think it's a new title for me. I don't know that I've encountered many heads of equity strategy. So can we start with, like, can you tell me about the scope of your role and the work that you're doing at LinkedIn? Yeah, yeah, I can. Uh, First and foremost, though, Tim, thank you. Thank you for having me um, and, and for making the space and the time. Um, I do want to just acknowledge that we are in unprecedented times. And I know that word probably gets used a lot, so it doesn't carry a lot of meaning. But I think about what's happening abroad. I think about what's happening here in the U.S. I think about what's happening um, everywhere. And I hope that that you and your loved ones are, are safe as well as can be. Um, but Theirs as well. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, so head of equity strategy. So so you're 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 spot on. I don't know that any companies have started to unify all of their efforts around um, kind of a single role and actually set up a, a team that's that's meant to focus on this. So I do believe it is it is kind of the first of its kind, which is one of the things that's commendable and powerful and also exemplary in terms of what our company is committed to in this space. So Head of equity strategy, um, you know, when we talk about equity, I feel like it's also this like ubiquitous, but but at times kind of nebulous concept. And so maybe what I can also root us in quickly is kind of what we mean 
when we say mm-hmm. equity and then talk a little bit um, as well about kind of my role and my scope is in focus. So um, when we think about equity, what we're effectively thinking about is the acknowledgement that systemic barriers exist that prevent folks from reaching and maximizing their full potential. And so when we talk about being committed to equity, what we're effectively trying to drive is ensuring that all members from any demographic can reach their maximum potential. As a company, our vision and our commitment is to create economic opportunity for every member of the workforce. And we want to make sure we can do that equitably. And so my, my role um, is to head up equity strategy across the company. And kind of the evolution of it has been such that, like many companies, we've been on our equity journey for a while. It's also our forever work. So it's not something that's like a six month or a couple year project. It's definitely our forever work. I think uh, I'll, I'll give I'll give I'll give Drew uh, credit for coining that. Drew McGaskill, uh, for some who may or may not know, um, and we've been doing this work. We've actually been on this journey for for a while, right? Um, and so the, the the kind of evolution of this was for our leadership team to set up this head of equity strategy role about six months ago, and really look to unify all the work across the company to make sure that from a strategic perspective, we're prioritizing accordingly. And we're actually making progress in the most effective way that we can. So diversity, equity, and inclusion, like that's the the phrase, I guess, if you will, which in a way makes it seem like equity is somewhat separate from diversity and inclusion. But then again, like by the three being grouped to the point of becoming an acronym also seems to reflect that each of the, it's all intertwined. We could get into a really philosophical conversation about everything being intertwined, but we don't know. We need to jump all the way there. But how have you seen equity then figure into companies, LinkedIn's, as well as other companies that obviously use LinkedIn, but the work that they're doing with respect to diversity and inclusivity? Yeah. So, you know, plus one on kind of the connectedness between diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, Here, we also think about diversity, inclusion, and belonging. So again, kind of all interconnected. I think as a company, if we we think about how LinkedIn is positioned, there's not many companies. In fact, there's there's not a single company that's positioned the way that we are to deliver on on our equity goals. And so just to set the stage a little bit, and I'll, I'll get to your question around how our company's looking to us. So um, we have over 700 million members. We've got over 60 million customers. And we really sit at this intersection, right? A very important intersection of economic opportunity or creating and driving economic opportunity. Um, And one of those important intersections is the job marketplace and being able to find employment. And so one of the questions that our CEO, Ryan Roslowski gets every time he talks to another CEO or a chief people officer or a chief HR officer or chief product is, how can LinkedIn as a company and as a platform help our company deliver on our diversity and inclusion goals? And so the business need is there, the opportunity is there. And again, we're very uniquely positioned to to, to take advantage of that and help deliver on it. And so I'll, I'll talk through this in maybe kind of focus areas so the, the focus areas of our equity strategy are around members, customers, 
and employees, right? So on, on the member front, it's how are we making sure that members are on our platform, are able to engage in a safe and trusted way, are able to build and grow their networks, are able to take advantage of whatever value proposition they come to the platform for, find a job, grow my network, maybe do sales, maybe do advertising. On the company front, what we're really focused on, and this is again, how we're uniquely positioned is, how are we building products and features that actually enable companies to deliver against their equity goals, right? So again, products and features. We're, we're, we're a tech company, we build product. And then on the employee side, it's really focused on for our around 16,000 worldwide employees, how are we making sure that an equity mindset is kind of infused into the way that we're thinking, into the way that we're doing business, not just building products, but actually daily operations. And of course, how are we delivering on our own commitments to diversity and equity to make sure our workforce, our workforce is representative and, and inclusive? So we're kind of thinking about our, our equity strategy across those three focus areas. And, you know, how are we helping companies in that space? I'd say it's, I think about it as how are we helping kind of both sides, right? So how are we helping both members and customers? And I can give kind of a, a quick example, and I'll actually um, use one, one that you started with, which is this notion from, from, from a member perspective, right? Like if I'm a member on the platform, how is it that I can, how is it that we as a company can make sure that members feel represented? feel comfortable, feel empowered to, again, come to our platform and realize whatever value proposition that they have in mind. And with someone who has a name that is often mispronounced, you know, one of the features that we introduced was name pronunciation, right? Another feature we introduced was, you know, gender pronouns. How is it that you like to be referred to? And so, you know, products and, and features like these that, again, kind of empower and enable members to feel like I'm seen, to feel like I am recognized, all become buildups of steps that really get them to the place of realizing the full value from the platform. Um, on, the, on, the, on the flip side of that, right? It's actually the same on the flip side, if I think about it from a company perspective, which is I'm coming in mm -hmm. to get to know a candidate or a potential candidate. I want to be able to know. How is it that you like to be referred to? I want to be able to go into an interview and into a meeting and actually be able to call you by your name in its correct, in its correct pronunciation. So, you know, a, a, a small and kind of quick example in terms of some of the things that we are doing in the marketplace on both sides for both employees and members to help them along in this journey. Got it. And there's like a kind of man in the mirror type um, approach to this or aspect to this or like, uh, you know, people... On an airplane, you, you're told, put your own mask on first before you help others get their mask on. Um, and so I'm curious, like with LinkedIn, what the experience has been like, because I saw there was a stat that um, for every $1 earned by LinkedIn's male employees, female employees earn 0.998 cents. And so like it's, you know, a thousandth of a dollar difference there, which is really good because I, I forget the exact this kind of the average stat, but generally the disparity is much greater than that. And then employees of color in the U.S. earn one dollar for every dollar earned by white employees. What was the work that had to be done, and then the changes that had to be made to reach this level of parity of equity? 
Yeah, so pay equity in particular is definitely something that's that's exceedingly important and is is something that needs to continue to be factored into all companies' equity strategies and diversity strategies. Um, you know, you quoted some of the numbers and, and, you know, just to give you a sense kind of from a global perspective, it's generally like 70 to 80 cents on the dollar for, for women against men. And then when you start to get into some of the uh, racial or kind of ethnic demographics, it just, it drops from there um, as low as I think 46 cents on the dollar for like Latino women versus, versus white men, right? So the numbers um, in terms of where we have to go, not just in the US, but likely abroad, there's plenty of opportunity there, right? So let me fast forward to to our stats that we published as part of our, our 2020 kind of update earlier, which you quoted correctly, which is, you know, for for every dollar a white man earns, women are at 0.998. And for every dollar a white employee earns, an employee of color is is also at a dollar, um, which is which is good. And so, you know, your question of, you know, how do we get to that point? I think one, just being committed as a leadership team and as a company, that this is something we would commit to looking at on a regular basis when and if we identify differences and gaps, committing to close them. I think it's it starts with a leadership commitment and acknowledgement and approach of going in without any assumptions, but being really willing to look for answers to questions that are difficult for which if you find the answer might not be what you want, right? But being willing to do that. And again, if you see things that need to be corrected, need to be adjusted, being transparent about it and then being committed to doing something. Now, I'll also say that this is ongoing, right? These are kind of point in time. So I think there's also a nod that needs to give, be given to injecting this into standard processes, standard procedures going forward. So it's not something that's point in time that, that runs the risk of getting stale um, as, as, as days passed. Yeah, and that's one thing I'm curious about because as much as I'd imagine a majority of companies are still trying to get to that level of pay equity. I, I would love to be wrong on that, but I feel like I'm probably right about that. Um, at some point, they will hopefully get there. And so I'm curious, like given that LinkedIn is there, whether the strategy needs any adjustments once you get there in order to maintain it. Like I think of, you know, something my dad had told me when I was really little and had like a nice report card. And he's like, that's great that you got a nice report card, but like the only thing harder than getting to that point is staying there. And so I'm curious for LinkedIn to stay at this point, like what adjustments, if any, are required? I don't know that it's an adjustment. I think it's more of a commitment to stay the course and acknowledge that this is not necessarily a destination like, oh, we're there. Great. Let's check the box and turn the corner and look elsewhere. It's staying hyper-focused on the areas that we've prioritized and being vigilant around, again, continuous monitoring, continuous improvement. Um, we're not you know, you know, to be after perfection, I think is is unrealistic in in any circumstance. Um, but to also feel like you've reached a destination and your work is done, I feel like is is also something that you don't want to strive for. So again, I don't know that it's an adjustment of anything that needs to happen, just a commitment to continuously monitor, make corrective actions if and when we see them, and know that it's it's a journey. Mm-hmm. 
On the diversity side, LinkedIn has set the goal of doubling the number of Black and Latinx leaders, managers, and senior members of its U.S. team over the next five years. What are the current numbers that are serving as the benchmark for that goal? Yeah, so in October, so actually coming up here in less than two months, um, we'll be per- we'll be publishing our annual diversity report, and if you look at our annual diversity port- report that was published last year, um, some of the baseline numbers that that that, that you'll see um, is is what we're building from, um, and we've got you know we've got growth opportunity. Um, you know, if you look at our our prior LinkedIn diversity report, when you look at our overall workforce, we split it by a couple of different demographics, and you'll see that you know for for white we're at about forty five percent, for Asian we're at about forty two, for Latin we're at about six, and for Black we're at about four. Um, so you know those are those are some of the the numbers that we published as part of last year's report. Um, again, we're we're probably about eight or so weeks from the updated report that'll come out in October. Um, but we've got we've got work to do, and we're committed to continuing to do it. Got it. And when I first saw that, I was like, "Great, doubling." Then I saw the five years, and my my first reaction is, five years. That that feels like a long time. Like so much changes in five years. Then my second reaction was. Well, this is LinkedIn. We're talking about LinkedIn's got a lot of data. They got all the Microsoft computing power these days. So if if they're setting this goal for five years, it's probably not like stick a thumb in the air. Five years seems like a good time or throw a dart at the board. What went into setting that goal as a five-year goal? Yeah, I mean, I think if you looked at... um... Some of what was published, like link, we set that goal as, as a company as LinkedIn, but Microsoft, which as you alluded to, is our parent company, and they also set their goal at the five-year mark. There's this sense of urgency that I think is good and I think is positive. And it's that sense of urgency that forces us to continue to move. But there's also the notion of these things take time and we're trying to address challenges um, barriers that have existed for quite some time, um, predating kind of both 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 me and you, right? You talked about the the quote that your father, um, you know, shared with you, which by the way, my father shared the same way. It's like, oh, nice. the easy part's getting an A, the hard part's keeping an A. Um, yeah. So, you know, I think, I think it's looking at it from the lens of, you know, a sense of urgency, right? Like let's, let's, let's move fast and let's put commitment behind this. I think it's also understanding the, the opportunity and kind of the challenge both sides of the coin that are in front of us, which is we're trying to change things that have existed for a very, very long time. And so when you kind of keep it in that context, you know, I think you get to a a place of we've drawn the line in the sand, which is great, right? Because that's a step forward, right? Oftentimes you haven't seen companies come out and make overt commitments of, of lines in the sands and put a timeline behind it. And so I think when you factor all of those things, the thing that I'm trying to focus on and I'm most excited about is we've made the commitment. We're going to hold ourselves accountable. Um, and in five years, hopefully we're in a much better place than we are today. Right. And it's like one of those things, like I think of water a lot of times when I think of these types of systemic issues. Water, I would say the most powerful force. I I surf and so I'm very familiar with the force of water, but it's also something that works very slowly. But then you look at any coastline and you see the power of water, how it can reshape land. 
Um, so it, it makes sense that this would have to be a long process. Um, it, and then it's just a matter of keeping the eye on the ball. Absolutely. Um, and Tim, for, for what it's worth, I, I like the analogy for water and I like that you're a surfer. I actually um, have a fear of water that, I, that I'm working through, uh, but oh, I, no. I, I, appreciate, I appreciate the analogy. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor and we'll be right back. I'm James O'Brien, head of production at Custom, Digiday Media's in-house agency. In this podcast audio story sponsored by Mountain, we're going to look at something slightly surprising about the television advertising landscape. That is, for some stakeholders, approaches to the evolving world of sight, sound, and motion are stuck in a kind of old-school rerun. In the old way of television advertising, there really wasn't a whole lot of information to go off of to really understand the effectiveness of your TV campaign. Uh, now with uh, connected television, um, you know, there's no need for Nielsen anymore. Uh, every platform can deliver way more information with way more precision than you ever than you ever had before. And again, this is another thing that we've been noticing that uh, brand marketers, uh, they either are unaware of this new precision that's available to them or because of old habits, they just don't care. That's Ali Ha'eri, Vice President of Marketing at Mountain. His teams are working to help reshape the conversation around TV for advertisers. And to his eye, there will always be a focus on brand awareness. But in 2021, brand awareness alone leaves out the smartest parts of the connected TV opportunity. So the brand awareness team typically is trained to just negotiate based off of CPM. Whatever the placement is for them, they're just from the outset obsessed with getting the cheapest price for the inventory that they're looking to get, which obviously makes makes a lot of sense. They, they want to be as efficient with the budget that they're working with as uh, as possible. And so the, the problem with that is that the inventory that's going to have the cheapest CPM is not going to be the same inventory that's actually going to deliver not just great results, but also get the messaging consistently in front of the most prized prospects for a brand. And so this is why we see that the performance team at a company tends to sort of get it, so to speak, because what they're doing is rather than worrying about uh, something like CPM at, at the front end of the process, they're thinking about the outcome of the process. The uh, performance marketers are thinking about return on ad spend or ROAS as a metric. And so when you're just thinking about, uh, you know, the, the return that you're going to get on the campaign rather than uh, negotiating on CPMs, then that changes the whole conversation. Still, old habits can be hard to switch off. Sometimes in the world of TV advertising, success at new approaches requires a bit of persistence. Really what helps is pulling the brand marketers in the direction of the performance marketers. It's, it's not that, you know, performance marketing is better than brand marketing, but really what's important is educating the brand marketers to, to, to really value data and, and measurability. It's all worth the effort, Ali said. When these previously distant elements come together in the TV space, pathways to both awareness and conversions appear. Brand marketing is still here to stay great stories, you're still gonna see them, award-winning TV, TV commercial campaigns. None of that is changing. But now, in my opinion, the brand marketers are empowered. They're, they're smarter about their approach. And, uh, and with connected television, allowing users to, to segment, 
uh, and to to expect specific outcomes. It's it's gonna it's gonna activate a new level of of creativity from brand marketers, which is gonna be pretty exciting. I'm James O'Brien. Now back to the Digiday podcast. I want to talk about what LinkedIn's doing to promote equity across the broader workforce, you know, beyond just LinkedIn itself. And if I'm not mistaken, LinkedIn recently announced a tool for recruiters to hide candidates' names and profile photos when hiring managers are evaluating people for open positions. Is that right? Is that something that just recently rolled out? It is. So the notion of hiding names and photos is is a new product and feature um, that, that we've rolled out. And I, I shouldn't necessarily say it's, it's net new. Um, we've made improvements to the feature and then made kind of... Um, accessibility in terms of where you find it in the product a bit more a bit more straightforward um so so yes the high high profile names and photos is something that we've recently kind of re-released um we're still in the process of of rolling it out more broadly to kind of all the customer base um but a phenomenal project and a phenomenal feature and the spirit behind that and i forget if it was the wall street journal or new york times it was an article just about two weeks ago that talked about kind of the potential bias that's introduced just with visibly seeing someone's photo or even seeing someone's name. And some of these biases are unconscious entirely. Whether they're unconscious or not, the reality is if you have something that could potentially be a detractor from focusing on what's ultimately important, which is the skills, the experience, the potential of the candidate, what are some tools that we can put in place to help mitigate some of that and so this high name and profile um, feature is really geared towards helping folks mitigate bias that could be unconscious as they go through the hiring process if you're actually having a funnel that's uh, potentially more representative someone could probably make the devil's advocate argument of well if you're hiding people's you know names and their profiles what about a company who's trying to improve diversity making sure that they are bringing in diverse candidates and now you know they you know what if their biases end up you know subconscious biases end up leading to candidates who are very homogenous but i guess the idea is no like bring the candidates in on the merits and then hopefully they're diverse and if they're not diverse then just bring in more candidates is that generally the idea here well you 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 bring up a good um point that that I actually want to expand on a bit, which is that I talked about this being a journey. Um, And the reality is different individuals, different companies are at different points of the journey. And so your your comment around how could the feature be best leveraged and most effectively leveraged by a company, I think it's it's a feature that you can turn on or turn off, right? So you don't have Mm -hmm. to use it. It's not mandatory out of the gate. And I think what's incumbent about companies is they really have to take a step back and look at what's their talent acquisition strategy. Where are they at in their journey for building diverse and inclusive workforces? And then assess products and features that we've made available, assess how that does align with what their strategy is and if it's something that can advance them. So I, I I think it is incumbent upon each company each talent acquisition team to figure out based on what their strategy is, how can these features help advance? And again, it's, it's, it's an option. Got it. And then um, LinkedIn also has project every member, which I think was, you know, maybe was initially like 
kind of announced, not by name, in 2019. I think 2020 was the first time you all put a name to it. But you know, that's an initiative to check that the products LinkedIn develops are not reinforcing, reinforcing existing social inequalities. How I tried to read up on this. There's a very, I'm sure, great but comprehensive, and by that I mean super technical. It gets into like math symbols and algorithms, um, but kind of explanation on LinkedIn's website of how Project Every Member kind of works on the product side. But like for, for a layperson perspective, how exactly does that effort work? Yeah, so Project Every Member, um, there's there's kind of two things I want to highlight, and I'll spend a little time on it. But um, as as you mentioned, it's it's a set of tools that we've built here internally at LinkedIn to help do a couple of things. Right, as we're in the process of developing algorithms, testing, and rolling them out, it's a set of uh, tools that help us assess if we're going to see any unintended consequences or kind of externalities. And there's a different, you know, set of rules and, and things that you can specify, but it's 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 a toolkit that we now use for new algorithm rollouts. That's that's one part of it. The second part of it, and you asked a question a while ago around kind of what is LinkedIn doing more broadly outside of LinkedIn, but the, the second part of that is we've actually open sourced that so that other companies and other teams can can leverage this toolkit. And it's 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 a it's called Lyft, which is uh, LinkedIn. Uh, fairness toolkit. And again, it's it's open sourced and other companies can also leverage it. And again, there's a couple of things that companies can can use to to tailor it to, to their specific models. Um, but but effectively it's now part of our processes as we're building, as we're designing, as we're rolling out algorithms, that's something um, that can also be done and leveraged by other companies because it's because we've open sourced it. So kind of two different um, layers of, of impact there. And it's a product that, that, that hopefully folks will take advantage of. Right. And I'm curious, like how you've been able to gauge its impact. Like last year, my colleague Seb Joseph you know, wrote a story where he reported on how black anti-racist um, campaigns had worried about being censored on LinkedIn. He spoke to a number of diversity advocates and they told him that they had posts that had gone up on LinkedIn that weren't reaching the same number of people that they had previously, weren't getting the same number of views, weren't getting the same number of comments. LinkedIn you know, told Seb for the piece, we don't censor um, anti-racism posts. Um, but I'm curious, like, if the company has evaluated how it evaluates and distributes content on the platform, basically, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion from a content distribution perspective. Yeah. So I think what's most important here is we don't censor content. And we have a red what should be readily available for all members, all users of the platform a user agreement and a set of uh, professional uh, community policies, which also you might, you might hear me refer to as PCP, but professional community policies that we continuously review to make sure that it is still um, addressing and creating the space and the environment that we want to be able to live and flourish on our LinkedIn platform. We have processes by which we evaluate and we do content reviews against that user agreement and against those PCPs. 
And if any of that content is in violation, then we will we will take action. But the difficult conversations around things like race, the difficult conversations around things like broader social injustices, we want those types of conversations to live and to thrive in our platform. We do think it is the appropriate place for that. Um, again, it's just user agreement and PCPs, making sure that is is applied um, across all pieces of content is is something that's really important in creating that space where members feel like they can thrive. Right. And always finding those areas for improvement, um, that, you know, whatever blind spots there may be for people, platforms, what have you, companies. Um, to that point, like given your purview at LinkedIn, your experience at LinkedIn, you know, both equity inside the company, equity across the workforce as insofar as they use LinkedIn, what right now would you say is a topic or issue with respect to equity that maybe isn't getting as much attention as it needs to, or that companies should be paying more attention to because it's a foundational element as like companies are hopefully keeping the eye on the ball when it comes to DNI after all the promises that were made last summer? So I don't know that it's an, an issue that people aren't paying attention to, right? But I, I actually phrase it as continuing to stay mindful that this is a, a journey, continuing to stay curious, continuing to stay humble, I think is probably one of the one of the things that I would hope LinkedIn continues to stay true to and that other companies continue to stay true to as well. And to the extent we can set the example for companies to kind of emulate, then great. Um, this is not easy work. These are not easy problems that we are trying to solve. We're going to learn and grow along the way. We're not going to get everything right every single time. So I think being mindful and committed to the long-term work that needs to be done here, being mindful that we still need to approach this as a from a place of learning and curiosity because we're not always going to get it right. And then I think kind of the humility and courage that comes with learning as you go along the way. Um, I, I would say those are the things um, that I think I would hope stay top of mind for again for LinkedIn and for other companies because this isn't this isn't easy work, but it's some of the most powerful work. Okay. I know we should wrap things up and, and we will, but I'm going to take a second to kind of challenge your humility a bit because not every day I get to, enter, I think you may be the first collegiate national champion we've had on the podcast. And certainly since Kaylee and I started hosting it together, I'm pretty sure I can say that. And so I just want to ask, you were a member of the national champion uh, University of Notre Dame women's basketball team. What was that like, like winning the championship, especially because you were a senior, if I'm not mistaken, when you won that. So I would think like you had all the expectations leading up to that year and in years previously, and then you finally get it. Just I'm just really curious what that feeling was like. It is very so. So thanks for doing the research and like going back to like eons of like microfiche or <laughs> sure. whatever this thing is probably still on. It was a lifetime ago, but it was definitely um, a highlight of, of any athlete's career. Um, you know, I it's very hard to put into words, Tim. Um, when you're a kid, 
who, by the way, I wanted to be the first woman to play basketball in the WNBA. That was like, that was like my dream. Um, a buildup to that is probably you need to go to high school and play basketball in high school and college <laughs> sure. first. But, you know, I was worried about right going to the NBA. But but what I, I share that because it's one of the things that's an earliest memory of mine in terms of what was a passion and what I was committed to. To get there and to realize that um, dream felt very surreal. It felt very surreal. But I will also say that in that single instant, and this is just for a split second in time, it's like a flash. The best way to explain it is that everything seemed right. There was no chaos. There was no pain. Like, and this is literally for a flash of a second. Like that's what it, that's what it felt like. How long did it take you to come to the realization? I can do that. I'm going to Disneyland line. <laughs> uh, I think we probably practiced that, um, um in, a, <laughs> in, a, in advance. Um, you know, I think the thing that's really fun is, uh, it also culminates with the with a trip to the White House, um, oh, yeah. and you know it's you go there and kind of everyone's there and you go with the men's team and Duke won that year. I've got a couple colleagues who also went to Duke, so we we get, we get to share fun stories about this. But you know, like you get to spend time with the president, you know, in the Oval Office, just kind of talking about not just sports but just the implications and what you've learned in sports and how that can further and will further translate into to life skills. And I can honestly say I still pull from, from those um, to this day, but it was, it was a tremendous experience. Thank you for asking about it. Oh, absolutely. It seems to have served you really well and LinkedIn and the broader workforce as well. So I'll leave it there, but uh, I'm Andy Dunbar. Appreciate you taking the time. Join us on the DJ podcast. This is a lot of fun. Thanks so much for your time, Tim. Really appreciate you having me on. So thanks again. I do wish you the best and hope you stay well. You as well. Thank you. And thank you for listening to the Digiday Podcast. Please don't forget to share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. You can even rate us on Apple Podcasts if you like. And we'll be back next week with another episode.